This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. There's always first-time listeners here at 88.7 or at WAGP.net. And so what do we do? Well, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a text of Scripture you want clarity on or just unsure how to interpret or apply a particular passage of Scripture or you're looking for uh, biblical counseling uh, as it relates to some challenge or problem that you're facing. If we can be of help, by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local number, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. You can also email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net. Of course, uh, we always give preference to live callers. So if you call us live here into the studio, we will definitely respond uh, to you first. Uh, many people call, and they don't really want to go on the air. They're just a little shy, and we get that. Uh, you can dictate your question if you're more comfortable doing it that way. And let me also just remind you that during the week, we also have opportunities for you to call here at 843-525-1859, same number, And when you do, you can uh, hit a certain button. What line is it, Rick, that brings you to the Bible line question? Nine-three, or pound, uh, I guess you could select number three. Yeah, okay, yeah, number three, pound three. And you can dictate your question in 30 seconds or less, assuming uh, you don't mind your voice going out over the air. And uh, we will play those questions as well. I know not everyone is able to, obviously, listen to uh, the Bible line because they're at work. And so very often they will send their questions in and we will email them when the answer is done. Now, be patient. Sometimes it takes a month or two to get to a question because so many come in. So we just take it uh, a week at a time and we see what God allows us to do. So that's kind of where we're at today. And we're glad you are here to join with us. All right, very good. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello? Yeah, welcome. Glad to hear you today with that engine booming in the background. Yes, we're with you. Go ahead. Hello? Yes, hello, hello, hello. (laughs) I think we're we're in the... uh, Dome of silence I would get so. smart. So yeah, go ahead and turn down your radio if you're doing that, and uh, just listen through your uh, telephone. Now go Hello? go ahead. Yes, what's your question? Oh, I'm sorry, we had a Bluetooth on. That's why. Uh, yeah, my question is about the call Brogy is uh, you know on uh, John chapter fifteen, uh, uh, verse one through three. Yes. Well, you know, in verse 2, it says, take up away. A lot of people think that if you take up the way, it means to, to 
cut off the branch, but if you look at the Greek word, as, as a mean to restore, to lift up. If you heard what think about the David Wilkinson's book, The Secret of the Vines, can you relate? Can you emphasize more on that, please? Okay, so uh, if you go to searchthescriptures.org, I've preached through the Gospel of John chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so I've dealt, obviously, with John 15, where uh, it's interesting just the context at the end of 14, uh, Jesus said, get up, let us go from here. And so they're in the upper room, and they are headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And between those two points, they come through a vineyard. And he uses that vineyard as a visible illustration of the Christian life. He describes himself, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so he's given a description of what a vine dresser does. Uh, the suckers are removed uh, from the life, so to speak, and God chastises us. He prunes us. Not all chastisement is negative in Scripture. Uh, very often it's very positive. We think of chastisement only negatively, like God's taking us to the woodshed. It's used actually positively as well. It's used in both ways in the New Testament. And so it's important that uh, we, we understand that in this context. And so he says to these believers, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And he's using the term here, clean, in reference to uh, saved. You're, you're, you're right with me. Uh, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So you never see a branch sweat and strain to produce fruit. No, it just relies on the vine, and the sap flows from the vine through the branch and produces the fruit. And so Jesus is using that as an illustration of how we are to walk with him. I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. It's not that you can't be active. You certainly can, but in terms of production, for the kingdom of God that the Spirit of God alone can produce. Without him, we can do absolutely nothing. You can cut your grass, but you can be carnal. You can serve in the nursery and have a bad attitude. Uh, you can share your faith in the power of the flesh. There's a lot of things that you can do, but not in terms of fruitfulness. Without Christ, you can do absolutely nothing. And then he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and it dries up and they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. And so Judas was um, uh, attached to Christ superficially, but he was not in Christ. And there is certainly a distinction. Uh, Jesus said it earlier in this gospel in John 8, uh, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Well, Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. Uh, and then he goes on to say, um, you do do the deeds of your father, and your father is the devil. So these are people who are superficially connected to Christ, but not really born again. And so in John 6, they're described as disciples and that they were learners, followers, but we often think of the term disciple only in reference to a believer, where the word mathetes just means a learner, and sometimes it's descriptive of an unbeliever. And so in John six sixty six, most of the so-called disciples uh, jettisoned and abandoned Christ because they weren't really true believers. 
So if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. He is cast into the fire. And so when John the Baptist came, uh, he said that, look, there's one coming after me who is baptizing you with the Spirit and with fire. And, of course, uh, if you look at that verse in the context, our dear Pentecostal friends love to take it out of context, and they describe it in some emotional way but not a biblically accurate way. Um, he makes it very clear that the fire there is the fire of judgment. Uh, likewise, uh, the Lord said to some religious leaders, but he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, coming for baptism, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, here's John the Baptist, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They had no real heart for the things of God. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. That's what we just read in John 8. But I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, speaking of Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's two baptisms that are described there. And so he goes on to say his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear out his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into his barn, but he will burn. There is the baptism of fire. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so when you look at John 15, the major lesson in this parable, if we might call it that, is that To be successful in the Christian life, we need to rely on Christ, depend on Christ like a man needs air to function. You can't do anything without the Spirit of Christ in you, uh, living his life in and through you. And he makes it very clear contextually that if someone doesn't bear fruit, it's just clear evidence that they're an unbeliever. And so if you have a bad branch in a vineyard, you just cut it off and it's good for nothing but to be burned in the fire It's good for firewood and nothing else. And that's certainly true with vine wood because you can't make uh, uh, furniture out of it or anything else. It's just good for for kindling. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Robert just called in and dictated his question. He'd like to know, does God hear and answer our prayers when we think them, not just speak them? Well, sure, you don't have to verbally uh, pray. You can certainly pray out loud, but many times you may just be praying quietly in your heart without verbalizing your prayer. And God, of course, knows even before there's a word on my tongue, Psalm 139 underscores, Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And so God knows what we're going to pray. And so, yeah, I would say probably the majority of the prayer that you will pray in your lifetime will be uh, in your heart without literally moving your tongue and your lips to articulate audibly words. That's how most prayer takes place. I mean, obviously, if we're to pray without ceasing— which is a command of Scripture, then uh, you're going to be praying in your heart continually as you go through the day. You'll be talking with God about all the things that you're doing. 
But then there are times for corporate prayer, for family prayer, for prayer with a friend, with your spouse, and they obviously can't agree because they can't read the heart, only God can, and that's when you are verbalizing your prayer, that together, uh, when you pray, say, our Father, not my Father, but our Father, Jesus was teaching there of corporate prayer, so there's a place for certainly both, but the majority is done in the human heart without words. Very good. 843-525-1859. Don't forget, if you had a question and didn't get to hear the answer, you can always go back later in the day to our website, uh, wagp.net, or search thescriptures.org and click on the Bible line, listen to it, and hopefully it will minister to you. Daniel from Peterborough, New Hampshire writes, Lately, I've been struggling with the notion of God's sovereignty and man's free will. I believe God is ultimately in control of all things, But I also know that Satan is the god of this age. Satan has some authority, so to speak, but appears to need permission to inflict harm, as in the case of Job. Job, on the other hand, has free will and could curse God and die. So, from the story of Job, it really appears that God is ultimately sovereign as he accepted the challenge from Satan. Job does not curse God and die and is doubly restored. Not sure if there's a question in there. Well, no, I think your assessment is is correct. Yeah, it was Martin Luther who said the devil is God's devil, and I think he was correct in that. And that is to say that Satan can't do anything apart from the sovereignty of God. Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He is a limited, created being, and he functions still under the God of the universe who rules above. And so while Satan is described as the God of this world, small g, and that what Adam was promised he lost and Satan gained, but the second Adam from above the Lord Jesus regained, and someday we will see the full promises of God's right to rule over the earth fulfilled in the millennial reign of the Messiah. But right now Satan has power, but it's not unlimited power. And so while we should respect Satan. Uh, We don't need to fear him in a trembling kind of way, and that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So there is always this balance in Scripture between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And so people who end up being, say, even possessed by a demon, it doesn't just happen. There's a series of choices that um, happen first that allow that to unfold in an individual's life. So there's free will. And so unbelievers who uh, get involved in the occult and other such things, very often with drugs, because interestingly, the word for drug is pharmakia. And we get our word, English word pharmacy from it, but it's actually rendered in most English Bibles, pharmakia, as sorcery. And it's not by accident when people open their minds up, when they allow their minds to be altered. And that's really what folks are doing with drugs, even with alcohol. They are unguarded by choices that they have made. And they are opening themselves potentially up for spiritual disaster. So again, there is this balance and it's well taken that you said. And so I, I would agree with what the statement you made. Let's go, uh, let's go to the next one. All right. Paul from, um, actually, Jeremiah from Lafayette, Indiana, writes, If all life was destroyed during the Great Flood except Noah's family on the ark, 
How did the race of the Nephilim in Genesis 6-4 continue after the great flood? In Numbers 13-33, we see them as the descendants of Anak. Was this race of giants just natural ranges of the human genetics locked in the DNA of Noah, or did the sons of God go into the daughters of men post-flood? Because if the latter, then what about Jude 6 that talks about God locking those angels up who committed this evil sin pre-flood? Or is Jude 6 relating to something else entirely? Thank you. Yeah, no, good good question. So um, what you might want to consider doing is listening to my message from the book of Genesis. I went through the whole book chapter by chapter, and in, verse, in, in chapter 6 I deal with the Nephilim. The King James uh, renders it giants. The the New American Standard, like many English translations, instead of interpreting the word, they just transliterate it. They take the Hebrew sounds and they make an English word from it. We do this many times in the Bible. Baptizo becomes baptism and so forth. But if you were to interpret the word, it means a strong one, a large one, a giant. Um, sometimes it's used, and again, words find their meaning in their context of a tyrant. And some, I think, have misunderstood Genesis 6, and they've thought, well, what's happening are these tyrants of sorts who are intermarrying with uh, believers, unbelievers marrying with um, uh, believers. But it doesn't say the, um, uh, the, it says that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, uh, cohabitated with the daughters of men. And so he uses two distinct terms to make it quite clear that he's not referring to humans with humans, so to speak, but the B'nai Elohim. And the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, again, context is everything, but like the last caller who just referenced uh, Job chapter 1, the B'nai Elohim are mentioned there, the sons of God, come into the presence of God. Those are angels, and those are fallen angels in that context, as is here. So it's not the sons of men uh, cohabitated with the daughters of men, but the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, cohabitated with the uh, daughters of men. And the great thing about this particular uh, section of Scripture is that you do have divine commentary that is often ignored. Now, I think the original readers understood clearly what he meant, but knowing maybe that we wouldn't be so sharp, uh, God looked down the carters of time, and in Second Peter 2, and then in the book of Jude, he gives us divine commentary on who these people are. And so he, for instance, says in Second Peter that if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction— by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous lots, so he'll rescue you. But prior to that, um, and by the way, I should say that Second Peter 2 and the book of Jude are like parallel chapters in that they both deal with the subject of apostasy. Jude in a little more depth, so I'm going to turn over to Jude for just a second. He says in Jude 4, we might say Jude 1, 4, but since there's just one chapter, we usually just say Jude 4, Philemon 3, or whatever, not the third chapter, but there's only one chapter, so the verse, for certain persons, he's talking about these who are unbelievers, have crept in unannounced, who are long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
And so we have people like this today in the church where they turn the grace of God into licentiousness and they're very loose on their view of illicit sex. And the reason is, is because they're often practicing it. And they come into the church, they appear to be evangelical, born-again people, but they're really not. And this is why the church needs to be taught sound doctrine, and they need to stay on the alert. So he said, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And here it is, and angels, he's talking about the Bnei Elohim, the sons of God of Genesis 6, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Just as, so there's a parallel between these angels who did not keep their proper domain, but abandoned the way God created them, their proper abode. These angels who, unlike other fallen angels, have freedom to wage war. Um, These angels are in eternal judgment just as, just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, as the same way as these who, as the same way as these angels just mentioned in the prior verse, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And so someone who engages in a homosexual relationship, a lesbian relationship, they're doing what these angels did and that they abandoned their proper abode and they're doing what's unnatural. They're not following God's creative design. And so there were a group of angels sometime in human history who had forsaken the way God designed them. By the way, every time an angel appears in Scripture, they always appear as males. They come down in human bodies. And these were angels who tried to um, cohabit. Well, they didn't try. They were successful. They cohabitated with women. Now, there were some uh, angels who came who visited Sodom and Gomorrah, and if you remember, they came into Lot's house, and the Sodomites of that city literally wanted to break down the door to come in and have a relationship with these men. But these were not normal men. These were holy angels. These were angels who had come to warn Lot and his family to get them out before God destroyed the place. So my point is it's possible when an angel comes in a male body to be able to have a relationship, either in a perverted way or for, if it's a fallen angel, to do evil and wickedness. And that's what took place in, in Noah's day. And so, for instance, um, Christ, uh, now I'm reading from First Peter 3, more commentary. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us. Why? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which? In which one? In his spirit. It, the which is neuter, as is the word spirit. And so they're modifying each other. In other words, before Christ physically was raised from the dead, in his spirit, he went and he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who? These spirits, and the word here is in reference to angels, who were once disobedient. When? When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. That's Genesis 6. And so there were some angels who did something in Noah's day that was so reprehensible. They are in a place that uh, Peter calls Tartarus. It's a, it's a, a cell uh, where they are in eternal 
responds. And so in Genesis 6, you have these angels who cohabitate with the daughters of men, and the um, offspring are, are huge people, Nephilim, giants. So this Hebrew word, Nephilim, that's translated as such, or giants in some translations, uh, is found in one other place in Scripture. And the other place that it's found is in Numbers thirteen twenty-two. These are not obviously the same Nephilim. Why? Because, one, those fallen angels who did that, they are in eternal bonds. So they had no other opportunity ever to rebel as fallen angels. There are some angels, too, who are in another place called the abyss, and the abyss is going to be opened up during the tribulation period. So when you think of angels in the broadest sense, think of holy angels and fallen angels. Fallen angels are demons. Demons can be categorized into three sections. Those who are in Tartarus, uh, it's translated hell, but it's a section of hell where these angels are in eternal bonds because of a wicked sin they did in Noah's day where they abandoned the natural function that God created them for and they cohabitated with humans. Then there are fallen angels who are in the abyss. And so if you remember when Jesus confronted the Gadarene demoniacs, they begged, oh, please don't send us in the abyss. Why? Because when you're in the abyss, you can't taunt men until the great tribulation period when the abyss is open. So they're not in eternal chains. And then there are those fallen angels that wage war currently. Beautiful illustration, Daniel 10, Ephesians 6, reminds us that our war is not against flesh and blood. So these Nephilim are just large people. And so the term just means someone of great size. In Genesis, it's someone of supernatural great size uh, in that these uh, created an offspring that was freakish, And so it might uh, certainly be part of the reason for the severity of the judgment that followed, uh, among other things, not just them, but the the people in Noah's day in general. Um, But then the term is used of just a very, very large person. And since uh, in the flood, all were destroyed except eight people, and then you see who the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth are, Uh, These are not descendants of the B'nai Elohim. These are just very large people, uh, the other time that it's referenced here in in the Torah. Good question. Let's go to the next one. And so listen to my message on Genesis 6. I walk through this very, very carefully. Very good. Sue from Beaufort writes, I've been listening to several sermons from Vadi Bakum and would like to hear Pastor Carl's opinion of him. Well, I like Vaudi. He's um, he's a good man. I actually tried to um, get him here some years ago. <laughs> he was too expensive. I, I couldn't afford him. Um, and I know he has to live and make a living. And uh, he almost died uh, last summer uh, with a heart attack. And he was able to make it from Africa where he runs a seminary now and lives there and made it to the States and almost collapsed in Dallas. But he survived and he's a good man. Uh, preaches the gospel. I don't agree with him at all on his eschatology. I think it's warped and distorted. He's an amillennialist, and so someone sent me a sermon he did on Revelation, and I thought, no, this is not even close to being accurate. Um, But with that said, so is uh, Alistair Begg. He's an amillennialist. We play him on our station, so that's not a test of fellowship. But I do think that amillennialism has put the church to sleep and that most amillennialists, they take either the preterist view of Revelation, that it all took place by 70 A.D., with the exception 
of uh, Revelation 19, the second coming. It's all history revelation. You really have to spiritualize the text and abuse it greatly and apply a different principle of interpretation, what we call a hermeneutic, to um, how to understand Scripture. So I had someone sent me this sermon on Vadi Bakum, and I said, man, you've created a straw man. Um, you know, there are certainly some people out there who have some weird and wild views who are not amillennialists, and when you start quoting these people as being the standard for how to interpret Revelation, I would differ with them too. But he didn't represent the futurist view as well. So if I'm going to quote an R.C. Sproul, who's a preterist, now dead and in heaven, I don't want to misrepresent the man. I want to represent him well. So Vadi is uh, real strong, especially on gender issues. He's real strong on... Uh, the role that men and women are to play in the local assembly. He's a good gospel preacher. I don't agree with his uh, doctrine on the last days. I think it's distorted, and I think, again, this puts people to sleep because they don't realize the significance of Israel. It's like God has written on the wall in large letters, wake up, church, we're in the final time frame, but if you think the church is the new Israel, then you won't see that. It's interesting. I was listening yesterday, half listening, I guess, to um, Wretched Radio with Todd Friel, mm-hmm. and he indicated that apparently there was a move afoot to try and get Vadi Bakum to be the president of the yeah. uh, Southern Baptist. Yeah, they, they, there is. I don't think it's going to happen because he would, have to, he. Uh, he would have to relocate his family to the States, and he's deeply committed, and he's doing a marvelous work in Africa in training uh, men from different uh, countries in Africa at his seminary to basically preach the gospel and do some basic teaching. Um, so uh, that that's a that's a good thing. Uh, but no, I, I don't think it will happen. Uh, but it, it, it was an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ellen just dictated her question. She would like to know: Is it wrong for a Protestant Christian to practice Lent? Yes, absolutely. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And so now this kind of thing has been. Uh, paraded in evangelical churches, and you know, some would say, "Well, this is all in the under the banner of being all things to all men that we might reach some." But if you look up the meaning of Lent as it's taught in Roman Catholicism, you're typically giving up something, or sometimes they try to spin it positively. You do something, you know, that's good. But it's all part of a works righteousness that denies the sufficiency of the gospel that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And so, Evan, you know, and here's the thing is that when you typically see an evangelical church begin to embrace liturgical practices, you are looking at a church that is adrift, uh, that is not committed to expository preaching. And so uh, they have departed from the kind of things that people need. So I was a Catholic, of course, growing up, and Lent began on Ash Wednesday, and I'd go to the special service, and uh, they would take some, I call it charcoal, but it was just ash, and they would make a cross on your face. And it was almost like Pharisaic. You showed up at school, and you had your, your cross on your forehead for that day. That meant you went to Mass, and... Um, but again, this is a practice that doesn't come until the late 4th, early 5th century. And so for, for 40 days, excluding Sundays, um, 
you eat sparingly, maybe you give up a, a food or a habit. Um, in some centuries, I won't even mention some of the things that they gave up um, because it's just disgusting. Um, but this somehow made you more right with God. So this is all part of the sacramental system that denies salvation by grace alone through faith alone, that somehow you can earn a righteousness before God. Now, some of the things that the early Lenten Christians, and some of them were Christians, some of them were not, again, full-blown Lenten practices doesn't don't happen until the Catholic Church is established. And so the bishop who was in Rome at that point took around 575 A.D., precedence over the other bishops across the world, and they named him uh, the Holy Father, the, the Pope. And so it further developed. Fasting, for instance, can be a good thing. Uh, it can be done in repentance. It can be done uh, in the context of seeking God over a particular issue, but it's not done to somehow earn favor with God because you don't earn favor with God. We operate under the principle of grace. I wouldn't go to a church that uh, was adopting Lenten practices because they are, the, the pastor who's leading that way must just be really ignorant of church history and what Roman Catholics teach. Look, there are Roman Catholic believers, and I'm not here to slam Roman Catholics. I, I want to win any, any, everybody and anybody that God will allow me to win. But listen, they deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That is a different gospel, and Lent is one expression of their works righteousness, and it's sad. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Paul from Bluffton wrote, I'm using Baruch Corman from Love Israel and Walter Martin's Blue Letter Bible for my expository studies. Are you familiar with them, and are their teachings good and in line with your understanding of Scripture? And do you have a recommendation aside of these two and yourself that I can use to expand my understanding of God's holy word in conjunction with prayer and the illumination from the Holy Spirit? Well, um, I don't know a whole lot about Love Israel. I've heard of them over the years. If you go to their website in the president and founders, Baruch Gorman, and you read their doctrinal statement, the doctrinal statement is very um, minimal, and so uh, if I remember, it's been a while since I've read it, but you could just type in Love Israel, maybe it's .org or com or whatever it is, um, and type in uh, Baruch's name, Corman. Uh, you'll find the doctrinal statement, but it was basically an affirmation that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah. And that's fantastic. And all I would say is that's about as far as it goes. So here's the problem is you have some... Uh, people who are calling themselves followers of Jesus today who say that Jesus is the Messiah, as this organization would, but their view is is that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, but he's not God. And you cannot separate his deity from his ability to save. And so I don't know where they stand. And their doctrinal statement is so scanty and it doesn't address issues of eschatology. It doesn't address issues of ecclesiology. It doesn't address issues of pneumatology. Every major realm of theology is just left out of their doctrinal statement. So my guess is they're probably good people, 
but I don't know. But they're not certainly one of the better-known Messianic Christian organizations. Maybe Jews for Jesus, maybe Behold Israel, maybe Friends of Israel. I think we play Friends of Israel on our station. Um, Those are the better-known Messianic organizations that you can certainly trust. And so I'm always cautious if if someone says, well, will you check this church out for me? And I go to their doctrinal statement, and it doesn't address, like, critical issues. Like, why are they not addressing it? Is it because they don't think they're important? Well, you have to take a position on critical issues that are really tests of faith. And if you don't spell those out, how do I know if they're sound or not? Um, in terms of the Blue Letter Bible, Walter Martin was a great brother in Christ. He, he wrote a classic work called Kingdom of the Cults. Sadly, Ravi Zacharias took it with his family's permission and updated it. In my view, it didn't need any updating. I still have his original work, and if you are looking for an excellent book in addressing the cults, it's still a standard work. Certainly the best um, evaluation of Mormonism that you can find. Certainly the best address of Jehovah's Witness that you can find. Uh, And then he deals with other groups that aren't necessarily cults, like he included Seventh-day Adventists, and he said certainly there are some Seventh-day Adventists in some parts of the world, like if you went to the Ukraine um, when I go to the Ukraine, they view Seventh-day Adventists as, as a cult. Why? Because uh, they have adopted um, a lot of uh, Ellen G. White's teaching as still being authoritative. And she, for instance, taught that Jesus had a sin nature, just never sinned. Just some really weird, wacko stuff. A lot of Seventh-day Adventists have shed some of those beliefs, but they're still odd on a number of things. They're practicing the dietary laws. When Christ is declared, all meats clean. He's removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek. Um, they still uh, practice the seventh day, the Sabbath, um, when God has ordained for his people now to meet on the first day of the week. So there's some problems with that, but it's still, Walter Martin was a great guy. So initially, the, the Blue Letter Bible's been around for like 30 years, and initially it was... Um, it was basically the King James Bible with a concordance and a really brief Bible dictionary. But it's grown over the years. And so if you're familiar with the Calvary Church movement, which is largely out of Southern California, Chuck Smith uh, in the late 1960s was really the founder of that movement where they were dealing with a lot of the so-called hippies of the 60s and 70s and trying to reach them with the gospel. And he did a phenomenal job. Uh, they kind of took over the Blue Letter Bible. So you got guys like Don Stewart and others, and and Don Stewart is a good guy, uh, a good apologist, sound teacher. Um, he's in his 70s now. I remember when he was a young man, and he worked closely with Josh McDowell, who was on staff with I myself uh, when I was on staff with Campus Crusade. So it's it's a, it's a good it's a good resource uh, that I that I would highly recommend. So good question. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's uh, Bible line, and um, Lester from Anderson, South Carolina, says, "I was recently asked by a Christian friend about the externality of our prayers, specifically in reference to the passage of Scripture found in Revelation five eight, which reads, they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints.'" The question is, are our prayers, which are lifted up for our loved ones or any of our prayers, still heard by God after our deaths? 
Would you kindly speak to this point and any pertinent theological aspects? So just to put it in the broader context, uh, this is in the futuristic section of the Revelation. Uh, it begins in one with after these things. And of course, God himself gives us an outline, as he does in a few books of the Bible, but he does for Revelation, and I think that was critical so we couldn't mess it up. And again, the futuristic view is the historical view of the church fathers that uh, he writes in chapter one of the things that were in the past. And so he records this vision he had of Christ and then the things that are are uh, in chapters two and three of the seven churches. And then he says, and you're to write down the things that will take place after these things, metatata. And just so you couldn't miss it, 4.1 begins after these things, metatata. And so the futuristic side begins and there's a picture of God the Father in the fourth chapter, and then the Son in the fifth chapter, who is worthy to open up this seven-sealed book, and there's only one who is worthy, and it's Christ, and God begins to unfold these seven seals. And in the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls, and so on. So, um, It says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's talking about Yeshua, Jesus, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb, speaking again, Jesus, a lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John affirmed. A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. By the way, Revelation is filled with symbols. And yet it's not as difficult to understand as we may think because the symbols are typically either translated directly within the book itself or through Old Testament passages. There's over 400 references to the Old Testament found in the book of Revelation. Some would say 800, but you can double count the same text. But there's certainly over 400 that are found. And so the seven spirits of God, that goes back to you know, Isaiah's prophecy and so forth and the book that he wrote. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book from the Father's hand, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the throne uh, or before the Lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So while these are literal harps and bowls, uh, we're told something of their symbolic nature. They're golden bowls full of incense. And specifically, the golden bowls are said because, again, many of these symbols are interpreted within Revelation. They're called the prayer of the saints. And incense, by the way, is often used in Scripture to symbolize the prayer of God's people. Uh, King David will pray in the Psalms, may my prayer be counted as incense before you. Now, I should say, again, our Roman Catholic expositors take this verse, they abuse it, they use it as a proof text to say that the saints in heaven are serving us by praying for us, and therefore we should be praying to them. But you have to remember that the term saints biblically doesn't apply to some elite group of people 
chosen by a pope or someone else who has some unique access to God. In the Bible, sainthood is not based on merit or on miracles. It's based on righteousness that's not earned. It's gifted. And so in the New Testament, every believer is called a saint. And so you don't go through Mary. You don't go through St. Valentine. You don't, when you take a trip on the road, a lot of Catholics in the 60s, we had these little statues of St. Christopher up on the dashboard or or, you know, you pray to St. Anthony if you've lost something, or St. Peregrine if you're sick. No, you go directly to God. Why? Because there's one intercessor between God and man. And so saints biblically is used to describe Old Testament believers. It's used to describe New Testament believers. And it's used to describe tribulation saints. And so that's why it's important when you come to Revelation 4, while the church is never mentioned, there are saints who are mentioned, and those saints are either tribulation saints who are saved during that seven-year period or uh, people who've gone on to be with the Lord in heaven. And don't get lost in that. The image here is of these elders who are holding these golden bowls full of incense, and so we need to ask, well, what's the significance of their prayers and exactly what are they praying for? And this passage is simply a reminder, I think, that God doesn't want forget a single prayer that we ever utter, but he gathers them in heaven. Now think your way through this. How many of you ever prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Uh, you pray that in the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, if you want to squish words a little bit. Um, but has God's kingdom ever come? Well, not yet. Uh, is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Certainly not. But every time you've prayed that prayer, any prayer that you've prayed in the will of God, uh, God heard it, and it's saved by him. And so one of these days we'll see the answer to that prayer because later in Revelation, in the 11th chapter, it will say the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so there's a visual, physical expression of the fact that God wants us to see that his, our prayers ascend to him like a sweet aroma, and uh, they are precious in his sight, and they are certainly not forgotten. Good question. Let's go on. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Anna from Savannah writes, greetings, Pastor Brogy. Thank you so much for this wonderful ministry and all your laboring in the word and doctrine. I'm reading through the book of Leviticus with my children, and we've come across the phrase, I will cut him off many times. I told my children I'm not sure what that means, so we thought we would ask you. Well, Anna from Savannah, certain rhyme to it, Rick. You yes, had it indeed. there. So, uh, uh, well, to be cut off. Well, I've been cut off many times, multiple times but not in a Levitical sort of way. I learned driving in Massachusetts. Rick spent a little time there. You get cut off every single day. Uh, I have a son who's living up in New England right now. He's in the Marine Corps, and he's in JAG officer school. And he said, I've never seen drivers like this before. I said, just go into Boston. I said, you're just getting a taste of it there in Rhode Island. In either case, it's a really good question. And context is everything. The, the, the Hebrew word is karat. And it's translated cut off. And when you read Exodus, you can be cut off for eating leaven uh, during the time of the Passover. Uh, You can be cut off for working on the Sabbath. Uh, You can be cut off for uh, using holy anointing oil. I did a sermon one time on the gifts of the wise men, gold, um, 
and myrrh and frankincense and what the significance of frankincense was as a holy anointing oil and how it was not to be duplicated. It was only to be used in the temple, not for personal use. Um, If someone ate a sacrifice in an unworthy manner, um, they could be cut off. Uh, If you ate the fat of the animal that was offered to God, if you were guilty of eating blood, you could be cut off from your people. Um, Further in Leviticus, where the term is most widely used, but it's found in Exodus and Numbers and so forth, um, you could be cut off for some kind of uh, illicit sexual relationship. You could be cut off for cursing or blaspheming God. So the term is used in a number of different ways, but then the question becomes, well, what does it actually mean to be cut off? And context determines everything because it can mean different things in different contexts. It can mean just to be banished from the community. During the time of the 40 years of wandering, you were banished from uh, the gathered tribes of Israel later. When uh, you were in the land of Israel, you would be excommunicated. It would parallel in some respects, I suppose, church discipline where someone was removed. Um, But it was not a status that could be changed. Um, It could uh, certainly mean physical death. For instance, I'm reading now from Exodus 31. Therefore, you are to keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it must be put to death. For whoever does any work, that person shall be cut off from his people. So obviously, physical death would also cut a person off from the people of God. Excommunication would, but physical death, obviously, for plain reasons. Uh, If you broke the Sabbath, I'm reading now from the book of Numbers, the 15th chapter. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they placed him in custody because it had not been decided what should be done with him. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones. And so a person could experience physical death for working on the Sabbath. And then from the numbers account, the way that that would take place is the people would stone him to death. Uh, So God took that very, very seriously. Uh, You can read further if you offered your child to Molech. Molech was a false pagan god, and people would take their newborn infants and put them on the arms of a statue and uh, have the child burned to death in worshiping a false god. Leviticus deals with that. I will set my face, God says, against the man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his children to Molech. And, uh, and then it clearly defines being cut off here as being put to death. So um, you put him to death. So there are many usages. Um, also in Leviticus 20, you could be cut off in that if you were involved in some uh, uh, incestual relationship, you married a close relative, then God said you would be cut off and that your genealogy would end. He says in uh, uh, Leviticus 20, it says, if there is a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, describing very respectfully a physical relationship, it is a disgrace. And they shall be cut off 
in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. And then after a few more examples, he defines specifically what he means by cut off. There's a man who sleeps with his uncle's wife. He has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They will bear their sin. They will die childless. So they're cut off means dying childless. So my point is, is that cut off can mean different things in different contexts. So this is very exciting to me. This mother who's obviously pouring over the scriptures with her children and they're reading reflectively, mom, what does it mean to be cut off? And so context is everything. Um, and you have to discern from the context what he means. And so you can't be dogmatic and say, well, it always means this, because it doesn't always. You can be removed from the tribes. You can be um, made childless. You can be physically slaughtered. And, and some would take cut off as being eternally separated in deference to being gathered with his people, which is a descriptive term of being uh, brought home to be with the Lord. All right. Well, I think we're about out of time. Rick. Well, we've got a minute, uh, actually two minutes. And okay. I, I wonder well, if you can you do got? this quick one. Right. Kay from Buford would like your opinion of these books, Soul Keeping by John Ortberg, Gentle and Lowly by Diane or by Dane Ortland. Haven't read either of them, so I don't know. You know, there are 30,000 books that are at least pre-COVID that would produce be produced on evangelical presses, and now many are self-published. So, I have no idea, and don't give me a copy because I don't have time to read them. Uh, but, uh, you know, people give me books all the time, and I say, hey, you know, someone gave me a book last week, and I said, Ray, I, you know, thank you, but I just don't want you to think that I'm going to read this because there's a good chance I won't. I said, right now I'm reading 25 commentaries in this particular book of the Bible, and uh, I don't know that I'll ever get to this, but um, so, you know, Kay, I know who Kay is. She's discerning. She can sort through it and see if the person is doctrinally sound. And you need to be careful because sometimes a person can write a book that's doctrinally sound. The book is. And so then you end up embracing the person when in other realms of theology, they're like way off. And so you want to be careful. There are some books that were produced that we didn't use. And the person said, well, what's wrong with this particular woman Bible teacher? And I said, well, nothing in this book, but in other realms, here's what she teaches. And so if I let you use this book in your ABF, then I'm giving broad, open, wholesale endorsement to everything else she does. And I don't want to do that. So anyway, good question. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible Line. God willing, we will be back next week. Pray for the Ukraine and for God's people there.